We are back with Phil Edwards. How you doing? Yeah, not so bad. Not bad, not bad. I've had uh, our man Felchinelli in my head for the past day, so yeah. he's living in my brain rent-free. <laughs> he's like that. Yeah. Where do we leave off? We, uh, we talked about Zhivago. Mm-hmm. And we talked about his time in Bra- in Bolivia. Yeah. So, so, so now we're coming to really like the the start of. I don't want to see. The, I don't want to say this is where he gets serious, right? Because he's been serious. I mean, getting arrested in Bolivia and interrogated by the CIA. Yeah, that's pretty serious. <laughs> it's not like clowning around, but yeah. but he he definitely takes a turn. And then maybe it's Bolivia that kind of like riles him up, but people in his life start noticing, you know, he's he's not the same guy anymore, right? Mm. Um he he definitely didn't take any lessons from the failure of the Bolivian model. And he wants to apply this notion of creating another Vietnam in Italy. Because, of course, like, the Italian left is adamantly against the war in Vietnam, an imperialist adventure. They, f- they think that starting a revolutionary movement, a guerrilla war, really, in Italy is going to be one of the things that bogs down, you know, the Western powers, mm. becomes becomes a, a money sink and basically saps all of its economic power so that they can, you know, um, liberate the whole world, right? This isn't just a project for them of, of, you know, ending the war in Vietnam. This is a project for them of ending international colonialism, which at that time... Mm. You know, you've got Salazar's Portugal still fighting colonial wars in Africa, you know. So, you know, this is it's still a very hot issue. Um, so after his release, Felchinelli returns to Italy via Cuba, where he writes an essay called Guerrilla Warfare and Revolutionary Politics. Drawing on the examples of South Vietnam and Venezuela, Felchinelli argued against the Communist Party's revisionism and attacks the notion of armed struggle in the future. Instead, he argued, political guerrilla warfare must develop as the fundamental strategic element in this current phase of the struggle of the Italian proletariat. Right? And Felchardelli's part of the reason why people start talking about guerrilla warfare in Italy in the late 60s. This is kind of a pivotal moment because you have the right wing of the Communist Party actually making kind of platitudes to the youth, like Amendola, sort of saying, we've been through, you know, this phase. We've been through, you know, the partisan struggle, our older generation. So listen to us when we say you don't need that anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And here's Feltrinelli circulating this uh, this idea that it's time for guerrilla warfare right now. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing to say. And, uh, you know, Italy as a you know member state of the, of the European community, it's like, um, you know, not, maybe not the most advanced capitalist economy, but certainly a first world state. It is a bizarre thing to say, you know, political guerrilla warfare. 
you know, as part of the, the fundamental element of this current phase. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a statement. It is. And you're right. It's not like you can live through this fantasy of retreating to the mountains where all there are is sort of like dirt footpaths and kind of, you know, raise your, your revolutionary stock with the peasantry. You know, Italy wasn't in that phase. And anyway, I think as they would find out, especially in the South, you're operating under completely different rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing. You know, he tries to embrace this kind of traditional model. So mm -hmm. uh, guerrilla warfare ought to represent counterviolence by defending against a far-right coup and embracing the FOCO model whereby small groups of partisans disperse and attack infrastructure sites, luring the occupying forces out of their comfort zone and into an unfamiliar field of battle where hit-and-run tact uh, tactics sap the resources of the core, allowing for greater insurrectional capacity for workers within the cities to ultimately unite with growing unrest and attacks in the countryside. So there's an idea of like a rural resistance ultimately uniting with the urban resistance and toppling, yeah, yeah toppling the whole this system. This is, uh, that's Regis Debray's uh, big argument, isn't it? The, the, the FOCO model. And um, yeah, Debray's book, uh, Revolution in the Revolution, um, it, it, in retrospect, it's been maligned as being, you know, a very unworldly, very unrealistic um, in its uh, projections of how successful the FOCO model could be. It's actually very critical of other um, forms of guerrilla warfare, you know, saying the, the whole idea of, you know, liberating an entire area and then holding it against all comers, that, that would never work. So, you know, the FOCO model is kind of a scaled down, more realistic model of, of guerrilla warfare, um, which mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's not also wildly optimistic, you know, but... Mm. Uh, yeah, I think the the whole thing, you know, adopting these kinds of abstract strategies, you know, didn't really have a lot of anchors in in the the conditions of the time. And so Che's diary is smuggled out of Bolivia after his death, and Fulcinelli had it translated in one night and published within two weeks. I don't know if he was on a lot of cocaine. <laughs> but it seems like it's, he, he's just like, you know, just flying through life. Uh, proceeds went to what he described as revolutionary movements in Latin America. But as far as I can tell, he handed it to someone at the embassy in the form of a suitcase full of cash. And it ended up in a Swiss bank account. <laughs> I'm, mm. not, I'm not sure just handing off a suitcase was, uh, was a great idea for the proceeds of Che's diary. Um, at any rate, by 1967, Falcinelli was writing the adrenaline rush of Cuba, Bolivia, and the Italian student movement's big insurgency. Uh, Enrique Filippini noted that, I realized Falcinelli was going off the rails, that he had fallen in love with an, an analogy, that he no longer understood the value of cultural mediation, that he had exceeded his own role, that his impatience had won. He became hasty, slapdash, headstrong. He was convinced that armed guerrilla warfare was the ultimate necessity. So that seems interesting, right? He's, he's saying Fulcinelli started 
in the 50s as a cultural mediator, you know? What, I, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, like, help the Italian public understand, you know, where left-wing revolutionists are coming from and bring sympathy to the third world struggles, right? And his writing becomes increasingly sort of, like, dogmatic, increasingly kind of... Um, maybe convinced of itself and he and he himself becomes more of like a political uh actor than a cultural figure i guess i think uh, yeah but he's he's still sort of trying to bring different strands together i mean it was it was in 1967 that um that uh i I think it was published um uh, Giovanni Pesce's uh, memoir uh, *Senza Trega*, uh, which was um, the, the uh, w- w- memoir of um, some people we'll get onto in, in a minute. Um, the original Gap, um, the um, armed patriotic groups, and um, it, it was a you know a, a sort of hagiography of, of of these people who sort of carried out uh, small scale acts of terrorism. On, um, as as a form of resistance against against uh, the Nazis, and um, so you know, so Fulcinelli was putting that out in 1967. Around about the same time, he was also putting out the, the Che Guevara stuff, and um, you know, going around talking to all these different groups on the left. You know, so he was still trying to be a mediator of sorts, just not so much about you know um, helping wider society understand, more about just kind of trying to knit things together on the left. Yeah, Sense Tregua becomes like one of the most important texts of uh, the next decade, you know, really signaling. And this is kind of like, there's like a reason to deeply sympathize with some of these people. Like Sense Tregua ends up kind of informing a, a, a deeply disturbed current in Italian left-wing movements. Uh, which sort of inspires Prima Linea, you know, uh, mm, one mm. of the one of the most violent groups of that period, you know, arguably. Um, they, they were initially called Sensor Tregua, weren't they? they were, well, the, yeah. they had a yeah, they certainly had a they had a publication called Sensor right. Tregua, which <laughs> yeah. then they kind of fused with other people, and they had their own like armed groups, and then they formed uh, Prima Linea because they basically wanted to start the civil war. That was like their, their, the difference between Prima Linea and, and some of the other armed groups was that armed groups were saying, you know, we need uh, this kind of insurrectionary moment, right? And, mm. uh, and Senza Tregua was like, that's not going to work anymore. That's not going to happen. We need to basically pull the plug on Italy. <laughs> we, mm. we need mm. to just mm. watch mm. the downward spiral of civil war and like bring it about. Um, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was where Prima Linea ended up, and and that was kind of the vision of the partisan warfare, right? It was it was it was that, you know, these ideas of like mass insurrection in the cities—that's what's optimistic, you know, mm, the reality yeah. of the of of the necessity of kind of revolutionary conflict is that we need to destroy life as everybody knows it. You know, mm. infrastructure. Well, 
Yeah, you, you have um, a Communist Party which isn't really willing to organise a mass insurrection, even if it was able to, even if it was able to, because it would escape its control. And and so they, you know, there's a great sort of romanticising of of, of uh, groups like the Gap going on. Um, Pesce um, himself described um, the Gap as. Um, Groups of patriot because sense of trade well literally means uh, no quarter or without a truce. Yeah. Um, so Perche describes the the gap as groups of patriots who who never gave the enemy quarter. They they struck him always. They they struck him um, all the time uh, in every circumstance, day and night, on the on the streets of the city, uh, in the heart of this of their fortresses. You know, I mean, it's it's you know, it's a kind of um ninja robin hood kind of <laughs> myth making you know exactly. and, yeah yeah exactly. and and, and it, it it's it's ultimately not very political you know because you know what you're saying is we're we're the good guys and because we're the good guys we recognize that they're the bad guys and therefore you know we kill them whenever we can <laughs> you know there's um just a slight tangent there's a, there's a, a pamphlet by um, an Italian anarchist, I don't know if you'll come, you come across this guy, uh, Alfredo Bonanno. Oh, yeah. And, and um, yeah, Bonanno in 1977, I think it was, um, wrote this pamphlet saying, um, you know, if it's okay to um, have a mass struggle against capitalism, why is it not okay to fight individual capitalists? And by fight, he meant assassinate, you know. Um, if, if we're going to you know, um, overthrow the status quo uh, on the glorious day. Why can't we start overthrowing it now? And, um, you know, it's that kind of, you know, voluntaristic um, mentality that, 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 the, that the, uh, the, the myth of groups like the Gap really lends itself to. And uh, like you say, it's, it's, it's interesting how this, interesting in a, in a gruesome sort of way, how this plays through in, in a group like the Prima Linea. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, which I mean, I don't, yeah. So, so the Communist Party starting to get actually pretty concerned here. Like you said, uh, if some kind of insurrection did happen, and there was a pretty strong audience for insurrection within the Communist Party's rank and file, um, uh, it would get out of their control very quickly. Um, in fact, its very nature was already kind of out of their control. So Felchinelli's really outflanking them. And uh, he wants to combine these kinds of revolutionary fragments, as he called them, through a new pub publication that would, as he wrote to Tony Negri of Potere Operaio at the time, not unite the left, but coordinate the different strands. So Felchinelli brought together representatives from the two main workerist publications, Classe Operaio and Quaderni Rossi, insisting that new liaison committees were emerging, but the committees fell apart and the workerists marginalized the publisher. For them, he was a little too outside the movement, and for him, they didn't understand internationalism and the third world. When he spoke in Cagliari, far-right groups booed him off the stage. So, I... Given the fractious nature of Italian politics at the time, I can completely understand why Feltrinelli was sort of rejected uh, in his 
strategy of trying to unite different strands. And it's true when he says they don't understand the third world. I mean, everybody, a lot of people said that. I think Lota Continua said that about Paterio Parayo. But mm. also, I think what they would have said as their rejoiner, maybe, is that he spends too much time in the third world. He doesn't <laughs> understand. He doesn't understand the Italian worker. He doesn't mm. understand the working class because, you know, workerists are obsessed with, you know, you don't understand the working class. You have to do inquiries. You have to study. You have to be yeah, yeah, in yeah. the factory. You and if you're not in the factory, you have to be outside the gates. You have to be communicating with the workers. You have to bring the workers in, right? Mm, um, mm. And even with Lotta Continua, they have their big split uh, in 1969 about whether they should be an external or an internal vanguard, ultimately deciding, no, we're the vanguard inside of the movement, right? Uh, with Adriano Sofri. So... With Feltrinelli, he's like, you know, the countryside, the people, you know, partisan warfare, and these other people who have been arguing it out over the past decade in these, in these uh, uh, journals are like, you know, Feltrinelli's useful, his publishing house puts out really great stuff, we can definitely, you know... Uh, co cooperate and coordinate in some ways, but this idea of like uniting everybody together after everybody's already had it out, for, you know, that's it's just wildly uh, idealistic. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, let's all work together, guys. Is rarely, <laughs> very rarely a successful appeal, sadly. But you know, particularly when you're someone like Feltrinelli, who's sort of you know, has a hell of a lot of baggage, you know. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, so from there, he also lionized the resistance movements in South Tyrol, right, which similarly smacked of separatism. His biographer, uh, Carlo, writes about this really well. He says, quote, Feltrinelli was also struck by pride of these frontier folks. South Tyrol is uh, in the Alps, just you know, on the border with Austria for, for the listeners. Um, there's a, a lot of separatism. There's a lot of conflict over whether Austria should have it or Italy should have it. And in the post-war period, uh, there were pretty big conflicts uh, involving some fascists kind of on both sides, <laughs> nationalists who were trying to fight it out over cultural uh, markers like what language should people speak, what kind of schools should people be going to, and things like that. So South Tyrol is like a, a, a hotbed of conflict. Doesn't seem like Feltrinelli really gets that. He just kind of admires them. And uh, so he's struck by pride by the, of these uh, uh, frontier folk and by the particular social relations and rules of the peasant communities. If the values that traditionally underpinned the defense of local independence continue to be upheld, then it might be possible to link up with a new socialist ethic that would serve to weld the ideas of the new world into the pre-proletarian culture. In other words, the bells of the country's churches might ring out one day in the name of an anti-fascist independence movement inspired not so much by Lenin, as by the Peasants' War, by the battles against Napoleon, or by the Anabaptist traditions. Mm, this is, wow. it, it's sort of, it's very new left, mm. right? It's very something that you might imagine 
in the New Left Review in the 19, late 60s, 70s, you know, this idea of we got to get back to the peasants' resistance, you know, we need to stop with the Stalinism and all of this stuff, you know, you know, we're getting into uh, pre-Marxist-Leninist understanding of people and communities and, you know, independence movements outside of the nationalist context. Mm. But again, he's really idolizing this region that he doesn't have a lot of experience with at all, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and, uh, you know, of course, a lot of people reading that sort of thing or hearing that sort of thing, it does sound like he's appealing to nationalist tendencies or tropes in reconstructing a kind of a communist ethic or a socialist ethic. So... A lot of problematic stuff. Mm. And it really seems like he's desperate. He's desperately scrambling for some kind of way of revolutionizing Italian life. And so he's going to Tyrol, Sardinia, you know. And I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it's working out for him. <laughs> mm. Mm. He, he was he was impatient, you know. He wanted to see some action, and he's kind of scraping around for you know anywhere where things might be kicking off. Um, you know, ironically, things were about to start kicking off in in you know right throughout Italy, but um... right. So yeah, and he's going to these hip student events with his girlfriend and holding forth in debates with young rebels about the resistance and how activists don't want to really do anything to threaten power. You know, so he's he's actively encouraging students to like leave the university and go into the mountains. You know, he's like he's like you kids today don't do anything. You know, back in my day, I joined a fighting <laughs> group, you know, against the fascists in 1944, joined the Communist Party in 1945. You know, he he really is like he's ranking on the students as like this kind of like old guard partisan mm, mm. and he's not he's just i mean like yeah i guess you could say he kind of comes from that generation but in itself that's an argument yeah 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 so you know uh and then his personal life just becomes a, a mess but it, the whole time, so this is happening in 1969, which is maybe, it's easily one of the most raucous years in Italian history. Uh, mm. in, in early August 1969, fascists bomb a number of trains in what would be the lead up to the Piazza Fontana massacre. Felcinelli rents a farmhouse in the mountains above Genoa and holds up there for 20 days with a few friends and some radios, some guns, preparing for partisan activity in the event of a coup. Now, what Feltrinelli appears to have known at the time, which a lot of people in Italy didn't know, was that there really were the gears in motion for a coup. Oh, and, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. and that the Piazza Fatena massacre was directly tied to this, as were the bombings of trains that preceded it. Mm, so, mm, mm. so he's not wrong. No, I mean the the, the idea that um, 
that you know the idea that there might be uh, a coup that a coup might be underway um was was quite widely held and like you say it wasn't entirely groundless and um you know the idea that the appropriate way to respond to a coup might be to hole up in the mountains with with some guns um was was slightly less widely held but you know it wasn't just Feltrinelli by any means um there, there were quite a few people who were um Adrian Sofri himself said you know um we all thought these things you know we all thought there was a maybe a coup underway and um you know and some of us made preparations you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, you know so you know you have to understand that they're going through a lot but it is also kind of funny imagining Feltrinelli in the mountains with a few friends and a bunch of guns and radios just like mm, <laughs> grinding right. their teeth. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so police actually started to try to pin the bombing on Feltrinelli himself. You know, there's a yeah, lot of conspiracy I mean, they, they, they searched his office, you know, and, and, and I mean, you can, you can understand... Um, Again, you know, I'm going to go underground like the partisans is a bit crazy. But, you know, the police have just searched my office. I've got all kinds of incriminating gear. I probably need to get out of here. It's quite <laughs> rational, you know. Yeah. So. He thinks that the Piazza Fontana massacre is like the burning of the Reichstag immediately. Like, that's what he compares it to. And, and he says rather than put, uh, re return to Milan and put himself at the mercy of the police... He's going to start organizing his partisan group. Like, this is it. This is the line. They've crossed it. You know, we're doing it now. So uh, he went to the famous partisan named uh, Chino Monscatelli to convince him to come along. And he goes into hiding and starts to write to his comrades, if I don't show up in my office, it's because faced as I am with the ongoing conspiracy of a coalition of the Italian and the foreign right, I have no confidence that the truth will triumph. A number of public intellectuals lent their support to Felcinelli, including Noberto Bobbio, who's like one of the framers of the Constitution, you know, one of the most important thinkers in the 20th century, uh, uh, stating, I added my voice, weak as it may be, ha ha ha, to the chorus of protest against the gradual but not imperceptible transformation of a vaunted constitutional state into a police state. It's a pretty big deal for Bobbio. Hmm. You know? I mean, he's a liberal, but, you know, calling Italy a police state, that's a big... That was a big deal. Oh, yeah, deal. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So meanwhile, Felcinelli organizes a meeting with Patere Operaio's Antonio Negri and Franco Piperno, who had been a student leader in the physics department at Sapienza. They agreed to meet under assumed names in Switzerland, with Felcinelli adopting the name Osvaldo. The Patere Operaio guys got lost, uh, you know, on their way to the meeting and missed it. Um, Felcinelli himself had been on the run for weeks, and he writes to his eight-year-old son... All this is part of a bigger battle between the bosses and the rich people on one side and the workers and farm laborers on the other. It's a battle for freedom and against the injustices of the bosses so that the people, the poor people, the workers, may finally have a decent life so that they may send their children to school. Um, mm. He told his kid he was busy. 
you know, that's why he couldn't go home. So along with his adventures, there is also deep tragedy for his family, you know, as he goes on the run. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, the, the contact with Portelio Operaio is an interesting one, you know, the, he, he, he wrote to Piperno a couple of times um, saying, um, you know, can we work together? And it was never really going to come to anything, but um, uh, Oreste Scalzoni, the kind of third uh, key member of Portelio Operaio, said um, um, Falcinelli considered us to be sincere revolutionaries, but um, uh, deluded because we uh, we didn't think about we didn't uh, take counter revolution seriously, and sure. we didn't we didn't adequately um, pose the military question. You know, in other words, you know they weren't interested in um, in uh, stockpiling guns and so on. You know? Right, right. Um, I think I think they were though. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, maybe not in 1969. Yeah, okay, yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by by 1972, I guess you know they had Morucci. Uh, mm, leading, mm, leading the mm. illegal, illegal, illegal uh, work group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. illegal work. But uh, Scalzone, thinking that Scalzone hadn't really thought through the counter revolution. I mean, this is a guy who had a table dropped on his head by fascists during the student revolt days. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, he he was in the hospital for like months because mm, of mm. the violence that he personally experienced from the fascists. So I'm sure that he. Uh, had to take that with a grain of salt from our yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can just imagine these guys because Piperno and, and Scalzone were like the most militant leaders of Potere Operaio. I mean, it's part of the reason why people like uh, uh, Sergio Bologna left the, the group in 1970 is that, you know, there were these, you know, students student leaders from Rome who were taking it into this insurrectionary uh, uh, path. So, it, I mean, it, part of that might have been because they were influenced by Felcinelli. Mm, yeah, it's possible, yeah. Because Felcinelli is constantly telling the students they don't, you know, they don't care enough about their freedom. They don't do enough, you know, about the counter-revolution. He's really, mm. he's trying to drive them towards, uh, towards revolutionary action as he sees it. And, and this action is manifest in this new group that he creates, uh, which would be announced one evening in early 1970 through a mobile radio station packed into a compact car driving around the uh, outskirts of Genoa. And it says, attention, please, attention, please. This is Radio Gap, Gruppi d'Azione Partigiana. This is Radio Gap, Gruppi d'Azione Partigiana. Stay tuned. The announcement came in over the RAI evening news, so that's quite a hack. Uh, and unmistakably, the voice is Felcinelli's. You know, he says the 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 uh, the audio continues. Workers of Genoa, stay tuned. Attention, please. A fascist demonstration is to be held in Genoa Saturday afternoon. Fascist action squads from all over Italy will be massing in Genoa to hear a speech by Almirante. As in Milan and Rome, the fascist action squads will employ all forms of violence. Workers, comrades, young people, citizens, let us rally in order to strike at and destroy these squads to drive the fascists out of Genoa. Let us get ready for a great day of struggle against the bosses, against the fascists. Let us strengthen the unity of the working class. So the first pronouncement of 
his Gruppi d'Azione Partigiana, is about fighting the fascists in Genoa. Mm. Uh, he changed the name from Patriotica to Partigiana, partly probably to update the situation and also maybe try to shed a little bit of the nationalist characteristics of the Patriotica fa- st- mm. side. Um, but I mean, it's a... That's a that's a, those are big shoes to fill. I mean, like you said, they, they the 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 gap the original gap were not messing around at all. They assassinated people, you know, pretty much left and right. It wasn't it wasn't like Pesce, like we were always you know doing everything all the time, and it's this mm. like you know saturated you know romantic picture. Um, but they certainly committed assassinations and some of those assassinations were pretty controversial. You know, mm. they, they killed university professors, uh, Giovanni Gentile, you know, the philosopher who granted he was, in my opinion, not a good philosopher, but assassination didn't necessarily, it, it definitely heightened the tensions. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, and so Feltrinelli's usage of their name indicated that he, only, he not only sought to continue the partisan tradition in opposition to the Republic, but he was willing to take the struggle to the furthest extreme possible. So, uh, Feltrinelli meets with his nerve-wracked ex-wife, because everybody knows he's starting the gap all of a sudden. Um... On, and and uh, he does this on March 12th, 1970, in a restaurant in disguise. And he said, uh, uh, she later writes in her diary, no one can understand him. But interestingly, for a guy who nobody can understand, he still commanded the destiny of his publishing empire, which he directed towards strange technical books that had dry formulaic writing about sources of pollution or motorization costs, rather than the sweeping texts of Felcinelli's glory years. So he's he's kind of interpreting dialectical materialism in like a really uh, boring way. <laughs> um, at the same time, he was trying largely unsuccessfully to galvanize the old guard of the partisan movement, including uh, Cesare Milanese and the then vice president of the Italian Senate, a communist party headliner, uh, Pietro Secchia, who we talked about in the previous part. Um, and Sekia, uh, it should be said, was connected to Soviet intelligence, um, which also shared Felcinelli's worries about a coup. So this mm. is kind of the fodder for more of those other like right-wing conspiracy theories that Felcinelli was actually an instrument of Soviet intelligence mm. um, by this point. But I don't see a lot there due to the extent to which he fought against the Soviets? Well, indeed, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, a, <laughs> it was a very unreliable agent if he was one, you know. Yeah. So, um, with or without general uh, support of the old partisan guard, the gap was pushing ahead. In May 1970, they probably provided support to the 22nd of October movement in a series of attacks, bombings against the Social Democrats in the U.S. consulate, along with the kidnapping of a wealthy family's scion to be ransomed for 20 million lira. Now, I might do an episode about the 22nd of October movement. It's an important sort of thing. Mm. But some people would say they weren't just 
a, you know, aided by the gap. They were like an appendage of the gap. Yeah, I mean that that that's that would be my kind of take on it. That 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 um, I, I think you know the group was genuine enough. You know the group would have existed anyway, but when it came to actually um, you know doing stuff with guns and bombs, basically, um, it, the, all of that stuff was made possible by their contact with with the Gap. So you know operationally they were like the Gap's local column, you know, or you know something. Yeah. The, 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 other thing, the other thing I'd want to stress actually is is that is, is just how early this is in the in in the history of um, Italian armed struggle, if you like. Um, right. You know that that um, um, people weren't looking at these um, these 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 bombings and kidnappings and so on and and thinking, oh, it's just like the Red Brigades, you know, because <laughs> the Red Brigades hadn't really got going, you know, uh, they yeah. barely got going at all. Um, so, so all this was very, very new and and presumably very shocking. Yeah, yeah, true. It's 1970, uh, and the 22nd of October movement uh, had a huge influence on the Red Brigades, and in fact... Some mm. of their early actions and part of the early actions that ended up turning pretty violent uh, were in response to the 22nd of October trials and trying to liberate 22nd of October movement members. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's crucial. Like, Felcinelli and his technical uh, support of influence on the 22nd of October movement is a milestone in the entire Italian armed struggle. Um, so on, on September 24th, the Gap actually took action themselves against a couple of companies that had been uh, seeing a particularly high rate of on-the-job accidents. And that evening, they planted explosives in a couple of building yards and torched them. Two days later, another yard again a couple of days after that so what they're doing is they're 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 taking like construction companies and and uh and other sort of industrial companies to task for unsafe worker working conditions which is part of like it's a big demand in in uh the italian labor struggle at the time of course mm, mm, mm. so in february 1971 the target moved from an industry with high accident rates to companies thought to be financing the fascist party, the MSE, the Italian Social Movement, namely the Ignis plant owned by the Borghi family and the Garone factory, uh, the, sorry, the Garone refinery. Uh, Felcinelli called these demonstrative actions to, quote, gain experience. And after them, the usual methods were deployed to announce the act actions through the radio, right? So they kind of hack into the transmissions and broadcast their uh, actions over the radio. So, you know, he's starting out with these demonstrative actions to gain experience. There's no reason to believe he won't go into, you know, attacks on people, political assassinations, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, his meetings with his ex-wife, Inga, only deepened her concern around this time. But interestingly, it provides another uh, clue to another issue. The Red Brigades were going through formal restructuring to accord with the Tupamaros guerrilla group in South America. And it turns out 
that one of Felcinelli's complaints to his ex was that the publishing house was putting out bad information about the Tupamaros. So mm. there's a question here as to whether the Red Brigades were getting faulty information from Feltrinelli's publishing house about the waging of guerrilla warfare. Um, and then, of course, it goes to the other question, was Feltrinelli not communicating with the Red Brigades at this time? And w- I wonder if he was alerting them as well. Like, don't listen to the Feltrinelli books about uh, Tupamaros, listen to me. Or maybe there was a reciprocal thing where they were trying to say, you know the Tupamaros books weren't echoing the right procedures. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, this would be about the time that the, the replicas were f- first really went underground. Um, in the, you know, initially had, they had this idea of um, uh, doppio militanza, double militancy, which is something that keeps, keeps recurring. People keep aspiring to double militancy, which basically means that... Um, you know, you take part in strikes and demonstrations and occupations and so on openly as yourself, and um, and uh, and then go out and plant bombs in the evening. You know, and and you use the same name, you know, the same group name or whatever uh, for both of those things. And people kept trying that and kept abandoning it very quickly because um, you know. Uh, because it, it, it's sort of public knowledge who's on those strikes and demonstrations and it makes it much easier for the police to sort of pick up the people who are planting the bombs. So, it, it you know, it, it really doesn't work. But it's it's a sort of dream that a lot, a lot of these groups had. Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. I hadn't heard that one before. But yeah, the, this would have been about the time the, the Red Brigades went underground. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely. Um and we're going to get into that real soon, like the structure of the Italian underground and how much Feltrinelli influenced that. Um, to be sure, there was communication between the Red Brigades, uh, other groups, you know, Potere Operaio and uh, Feltrinelli's Gap, which is described in the faulty but useful book Strike One to Educate a Thousand. Um, in the Red Brigades associated publication Nuova Resistenza, the group argued that organizing a united front against a fascist coup was a fool's errand, since the centrist Christian Democrats were merely using the specter of a coup to maintain a solid power base within the electorate. Uh, They called the Black Prince Junio Valerio Borghese, who had attempted to engineer a coup through his group, the National Front, the two of clubs compared to the big players in power. But Nuova Resistenza still published GAP's communiques, as did Patere Operaio and Lotta Continua. There were also in-person communications. I mean, the Negri-Osvaldo uh, meeting didn't exactly work out, but a Red Brigade's leader named Valerio Marucci, right, who had been in Potere Operaio, actually was in Potere Operaio at the time, uh, recalled how, and then later joins the Roman column, recalled how, or actually kind of founds it, uh, in a sense, but recalled how one time at a house in Rome, Felcinelli made a demonstration. He mixed up two really improbable ingredients and managed to make them explode. Oddly, Marucci noted that the flame lit up Felcinelli's now gaunt face and reminded him of one committed to the study of the Talmud, which 
Um, Ferrucci is, yeah. I mean, uh, Mauricio <laughs> loved Feltrinelli. He, he, he said um, uh, Feltrinelli had, um, Feltrinelli had known revolutions around the world uh, much, much more. You know, he'd, he'd seen them face to face. Um, he knew that it wasn't a la wasn't a laughing matter. It was a matter of risking risking your life. And um, he'd uh, this is interesting. Actually, he said he'd. Um, adopted the organizational techniques of the Tupamaras to the letter. And um, this made other people smile, but it fascinated me. So, you know, as Marucci becomes more influential in the Red Brigades, you can see how Feltrinelli's influence indirectly comes through. Um, this is so interesting, right? The, the way that he idolizes Feltrinelli. And he also significantly notices Feltrinelli's got this Colt pistol in a shoulder holster with a cartridge belt show, sewed into it. So very like Rambo. Um, but also this Colt pistol is the one that is used by a Bolivian German named Monica when she enters the Bolivian embassy in Hamburg and assassinates Colonel Quintana, a well-known torturer connected to the Bolivian government. So what was this pistol purchased and worn by Feltrinelli during the doing in the hands of a German-born Bolivian assassin in Hamburg. The press had a field day when the purchaser of the firearm was brought to light. Word came down that there was a new incredible plot to kill Feltrinelli at this point. And Feltrinelli, like you're saying, he goes completely clandestine. So in May 1971, Feltrinelli writes to the Red Brigades to pitch an idea. The Gap and the Red Brigades can join into a People's Liberation Army as the fighting side of a larger popular liberation front. He meets with the Red Brigade's leaders, and then he goes to Prague, and apparently to Cuba, to train in guerrilla warfare tactics. But by September, he's back in Italy and in attendance at the Third Organizational Conference of Potero Parayo. Um, Carlo, Carlo Falcinelli does say that the... Uh... Italian intelligence services had a sort of an exaggerated picture of um, Feltrinelli's travels that, you know, he didn't actually um, crisscross the globe quite as much as, uh, as they made out. Okay, that's, a good, that's a good to know. That's good to know, yeah. Before we move on, the, the, just say uh, the meeting with the Red Brigades didn't go well either. <laughs> just, um, yeah, it... it he says, um, Fra Franceschini in his, in his book said, uh, um, he uh, deluged us with, uh, um, with uh, discussion of, on a revolutionary strategy and the structure of the proletarian army and the ro leading role of the Soviet Union. It's interesting that that comes through. And um, we tried to interrupt him, but, um, you know, he, but he, he, he heard us out, but... Uh, uh, what we had to say didn't convince him. We didn't want to build a, an army, but uh, an armed party, you know. So Feltrinelli's talking about a proletarian army, and they're saying, you know, that's, not, <laughs> that's not our thing, you know. We want to build an armed party, which is, you know, a bit different. And, uh, yeah, he, uh, the, the other thing was that um, uh, they actually knew him personally, you know, that they, they, they'd met him before um, in the days of the student movement in Trento. And um, Osvaldo, you know, he turns yeah. up in his Osvaldo road and says, "Hi, I'm Osvaldo, militant from the Gap." You know, <laughs> and they and he, and he insisted on staying in character, even though they they they, they knew full well who he was. It's, um... 
Yeah. I mean, it really does. It, 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 that, that checks with what his older friends and, you know, his ex-wife were saying about him. Mm. So, um, Patero Parayo had kind of been the group that ideologically supported him the most, in a sense, some members. Um, and things had fallen apart by this point, though. Um, Felchinelli was incognito at the, at the conference, the third organizational conference, and he leaves disillusioned. He thought the organization was too centralized and bureaucratic, which a lot of people had that criticism of Patera Abraio. Um, he called them still petite bourgeois Marxist ideologues, okay, which is like whatever. Um, and furthermore, go ahead. It's, yeah, pot and cattle again, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Furthermore, his relationship with Negri was on the rocks. Negri fell out with a lot of people. <laughs> so, you know, he's, I think in this sense, Feltrinelli's going from this grand struggle, this populist sense, we're going to unite the left, to at the end of the third conference of Potero Operaio, just being like kind of defeated in a sense and realizing that he is only creating uh, another nucleus. Mm. You know, he's he's just creating another ten, tendential group with its own ideas and its own framework. And the Red Brigades aren't going in with him. Patero Operaio is not going in with him. Nobody's really following his line. And of course, he blames them. He says, well, it's a class thing. Mm. So the next month, he writes a text called Class Struggle or Class War. He, and he, this is pointedly straight at... In a sense, although he doesn't come out and say it. His biographer, Carlo, calls the text, Carlo Feltrinelli calls the text a 15 page collection of warmongering solipsisms. So, yeah, he complains that the revolution lacked strategic strength, a political, military, and revolutionary counterpower that might confront, wear down, and disarm the military power of its adversary. There's a lot that's reminiscent of the attitude of the Red Brigades in Feltrinelli's sort of work at this time, and their organization started to look a lot alike, right down to the safe houses that they had in studio apartments around Milan. They would have guns, uh, slim gyms for stealing cars, a couple of bunk beds, uh, and the type of people who filtered through these rooms had names like Praga, The Blonde, Red Eye, and Sickle Tongue. They weren't, they weren't all from the same tendencies at all. They didn't know one another. So they would just bump into you when you were at the safe house, which seems to come off almost as like a cross between like a political uh, office and uh, kind of a youth hostel. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't understand what the fuck was going on, recalled one of the participants whose name was Coco Bill. They carried out recruitment at local bars and hit police barrack barracks or mounted patrols against fascists, sort of like flying patrols, uh, flying squads. Among them were more than one police informant. You know, it's a it's a it's a hot mess for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, the people who are involved in Feltrinelli's budding underground of armed struggle. Uh, it's not like uh the people who you might have been used to seeing around the student movement, 
right? Or even necessarily the factory. Yeah, right? yeah, he, he, yeah. yeah he's kind of drawing together kind of like this this sort of cluster of, of people who he appreciated because of their willingness to do things that were sort of dirty work. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Um, and this really fed into the police fantasies that all the different groups were part of one elaborate superstructure with Feltrinelli at the vertex. Because who's getting these apartments, you know? Who's, who's responsible for putting together these safe houses? You know, it's Feltrinelli. And it's not like, you know, the people in the safe house, again, they're not all gapists insofar as they're like, committed to this one single organization they're just sort of floating around this milieu so uh Felcinelli is monitored at the time and he's heard to say if they find a dead man under a bridge that man might be me so he's getting increasingly paranoid not for uh a lack of reasons uh but most of the talk in 1971 was still about torching fascist cars uh, with some f- chatter about symbolic kidnappings, where a hostage would be immediately released after the kidnapping. Yeah, that was that was the, the Red Brigade's um, early thing, wasn't it? They, they would, um, uh, if if somebody was a particularly you know evil factory foreman or something, they'd um, they'd um, scoop him up off the factory floor and sort of hex him in a room somewhere. And then hang a placard. It was kind of a Maoist, a sort of cultural revolution technique. Hang a placard around his neck saying, you know, I am a bastard or whatever. Yeah. And, and take a picture of it, publish the picture to humiliate him, you know. Um, yeah. The idea was you would kidnap somebody, immediately release them. What's the harm in that? It's just a little scary. Um, but some of the guys were doing some pretty concerted stalking as well. They would stalk the German consulate and the financial mogul uh, Sindona, easily one of the worst figures of the 1970s in terms of organized crime, financial scandals, political scandals. He's right at the heart of it. Definitely, yeah. But a lot of that doesn't really come out until 1973. Um, so it's interesting that they're already kind of keyed into him, clued into what's going on, maybe. Anyway, his son says... Uh, Carlo says it's pretty surprising that Felcinelli himself didn't get kidnapped amid all the stirrings because, because he's this rich guy. You could kidnap Felcinelli and make a pretty nice ransom. Um, but speaking of kidnappings, members of the Ordine Nuovo, the fascist terror group, had their own plot with Felcinelli in 1971. They actually went to his villa in Oberhof with a couple of cars, rifles, binoculars, some rope, and they're going to ether him at his place, like sneak up behind him and like put some chloroform or something, uh, you know, knock him out, throw him in the trunk and drive him back to Italy or actually the truck because they had a, they brought a truck, drive him back to Italy. Uh, but he wasn't there. He wasn't at the Oberhof Villa. So the plan fell through. But what a weak plan. <laughs> um, the Office of Confidential Affairs which employed fascist provocateurs around Italy, published a booklet called Feltrinelli Impotent Grilla based on old divorce documents and criticisms from the press. So they, along with the CIA, really thought that, it appears, really thought that um, Feltrinelli was an agent of Castro. Not necessarily China, not necessarily the Soviets, but an agent of Castro's being fielded in Italy. Um, 
and and they used old divorce documents about him in order to in order to really you know publish this damning piece of propaganda I mean, impotent gorilla is a weird phrase. And, you know, yeah. you have to wonder what they were up to, what they were trying to do. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, there's, there's a theory that, um, that they were actually trying to provoke him. They were saying, you know, you, you think you're a gorilla, you know, come on then, let's show what you, let's see what you're made of. And, of course, he duly did uh, take action, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that that's kind of common, you know, for the for sort of like a secret, uh, you know, clandestine, you know, stuff, the provocateur element of it. So uh, Felcinelli is increasingly in bad shape. He's coming down with bronchitis, which turned into pneumonia. These safe houses were probably not exactly the most sanitary places in the world. Like bachelor pad slash revolutionary uh uh center anyway um <laughs> through which he suffered in a shoddy hideout in milan you can just imagine felcinelli like these dishes piling up just not knowing what to do with himself uh he basically recovered but he was close to death or at least he felt himself to be such and this is already 1972 the silent majority protests are raging in Milan after the Reggio uprising. The Red Brigades had turned to kidnapping by this point, and Poterio Porayo and Lata Continua actually celebrated their early kidnapping um, event. The movement was increasingly going toward Felcinelli's direction of the urban guerrilla, even if it wasn't strategically coordinated in that way. It was getting more militant. And the notion of just class struggle was being left behind. Um, mm. In early March, Gap Associates Rooster and Bruno are plotting out the bombing of an electricity pylon outside of Milan with another sketchy dude, a skinny guy around 44 years old with a beard. It was a slightly rainy evening. It appears that they placed 10 sticks of dynamite at the base of the pylon, and the skinny one climbed up halfway uh, to plant more explosives when something happened, perhaps due to the rain. It would seem the dynamite he was trying to plant went off, blowing his leg off as he plummeted back to earth. His accomplices fled immediately, leaving the car keys in the dead man's pocket. The media thundered about a terrorist who blew himself up. Eventually, the man was identified. It's Feltrinelli. Seismic. What happened? This absolutely shocked the country. Partly because you couldn't find a more anticlimactic way for this guy to go. Hmm. Well, well, I mean, the, the conspiracy theory starts straight away. And one of the, uh, you know, one of the arguments was... Um, well, Feltrinelli is a multimillionaire. Why would he, he? He could pay someone to plant bombs for him. Why would he be there in person? But I mean, you know, as we've seen, Feltrinelli did like to be there in person, whatever whatever was going on. Oh, for um, sure. But, um, but 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 yeah, it, it was it was a just a massive massive shock, and um, um, you know, many people on the left thought that um, um, he must have been murdered. That. Um, 
that they they somebody unknown had uh, killed him and um, you know taken him to the site and then staged this this explosion as cover up. Um, there, there, there were people who. Um, in the Communist Party, especially the kind of sort of mainstream of the Communist Party, um, saw all these sort of terrorist um, activities as uh, as as neo-fascist provocation. So even the, even when they appeared to be on the left, they said, "Aha, you know, that's that's just how clever these fascists are. You know, it's all it's all a neo-fascist provocation." So yeah. so, so so that was one theory that uh, that the fascists had. Um, for unknown reasons, um, killed Feltrinelli, or else that Feltrinelli had got involved with fascists, and because um, he was so naive, he didn't know left from right, you know. Um, or there was the kind of um, the kind of gapist theory, you know, that from the people who were uh, more in tune with what Feltrinelli was doing, because people who thought that um, you know the idea of uh, the partisan struggle was was you know, was still something to aspire to. Um, they were quite embarrassed by yeah. how badly it had gone for Beltranelli. And, you know, so so they were also saying he must have been killed. You know, he couldn't have just blown himself up in a really clumsy attempt um, to, to blow up a, a power line, uh, which apparently, you know, even if he had, even if the bomb had gone off, um, apparently Milan would have been blacked out for kind of five minutes because yeah, uh, there, yeah. there would have been another power line which would have kicked in too yeah. um so so it's really strange um uh strange you know i mean the only thing i'm, I'm personally sure of is that it was Feltrinelli, you know acting as a member of the gap he, he did think he was he right. was carrying on the class struggle or whatever by Carrying on guerrilla warfare in Italy by by planting this bomb, and he did think he really needed to do it in person, um, right? But uh, you know, it, it was it, as I say, it was a a massive shock. I mean, lots of people, um, lots of people on the left, um, uh, you know, knew you know that he was kind of dabbling in that area. But bear in mind, you know, when we talk about Potrero Operaio, when we talk about Lotta Continua. Um, they're pretty small compared to the population of Italy, um, whereas most of the population of Italy had heard of Feltrinelli because he was this this figure in the um, who appeared in Vogue and, and so on. So, you know. Um, oh yeah, the publisher of Zhivago blows himself up while trying to cut power to Milan. I mean, for those of you who haven't woken up, welcome to the nineteen seventies. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It, it was it was the the the, um, the day of the um, or, or one of the days of the uh, the Communist Party Congress in which was in Milan, and during the Communist Party Congress, uh, Enrico Berlinguer would be appointed as the uh, as the new leader. Yeah. So you know, I, I when I read that, I immediately thought he was he was thinking of that. He was trying trying to disrupt Berlinguer's coronation, but. I don't know. Um, Well, the other thing is that there were, like, the other group that was really targeting pylons at the time was actually a far right-wing group called the Mm. Revolutionary Action Movement. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really interesting kind of 
question because you have all of these different figures. I'm not sure whether or not Felcinelli fully vetted the people that he was working with, you mm. know, who were who were moving through his safe houses. It very well could have been Felcinelli himself made the bombs, right? He wanted to be in control and he knew explosives. He just picked two guys to come with him. You know, they're not necessarily the most trustworthy guys, but, you know, they're on hand. Uh, and, you know, they've done some things in the past. And so uh, what if one of those guys had been, you know, an infiltrator from the Revolutionary Action Movement? Mm, mm, I don't know. Not impossible. Anyway, um, during his funeral, uh, Milan went into military lockdown. They thought, you know, this is going to be the moment when everybody rises up. It's going to be like when uh, somebody tried to kill Tagliati, you know. Mm. Um, but as the cortege passed, uh, with red flags flapping and chants rising into the air, even a police officer on duty was compelled to raise his fist in solidarity. Which is sort of incredible. His son, Carlo, would write of the death, To die for your ideas is the most radical of fairy tales. But his death did not unleash the power of symbol. It triggered displacement or caricature on both left and right. The life, a life ended by a defective timer that cost no more than a can of beans. He continues, Did the explosion happen because of a sharp movement up on the crossbar, the fabric of the pocket pressing against the timer, the pin making contact, or did someone set the timer within minutes instead of hours? The answer might close the story, but it would not resolve what really matters. These are really important reflections by Felcinelli. With all the speculation, however many possible scenarios might have taken place, um, the, the root of it, right, is that uh, Felcinelli dies somewhere between a, a legendary hero, martyr, and a punchline. I, th I think, yeah, I, th I think that's underselling him slightly because I, I think the, the the impact of his of his death on the far left, especially, was um, was huge. I mean, Balestrini writes about it in his his, his novel L'Editore, the publisher. He he, he says that. Um, um, he, he, he says that it, it really sort of blew apart, um, um, you, you know, friendships, relationships, um, affinity groups on the on the left, because people suddenly found themselves very, very polarized, um, and it, and it was essentially the question, um, you know, granted that planting dynamite under a power line isn't the way to go, granted that. Um, pretending to be partisans and blowing yourself up isn't a great idea. Nevertheless, um, do we think that some kind of armed struggle might be valid, or do we do we do you know reject it utterly in any circumstance? And Feltrinelli's death made that a really live question. And um, there's somebody in 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 um, it, it's actually the. Um, archivist Primo Moroni, who, who kind of has a part in the book because he was a friend of Balestrini's. Um, uh, Primo Moroni says um, there, there are two great uh, transition moments of transition, two watersheds, uh, the death of the publisher and uh, the kidnapping of Aldo Moro. 
Um, and, you know, the, first, mm. the, the death of uh, Falcianelli wow. begins a whole process. And um, the, the uh, assassination of Morrow and what and the clampdown that comes after that sort of puts a stop to it. Um, huh. so, so, you know, he, he, he says the, um, in effect, uh, Falcianelli's death is kind of the starting pistol for the... Uh, um, for, for the the armed struggle years, if you like, you know, that's incredible. I don't say the, I don't say the years of lead because you know the years of lead is uh, broader and you know kind of in, includes the the, the fascist uh, atrocities as well. Uh, yeah, and treating him like like treating these incidents like bookends is a really fascinating way to show the chaos of that period as well. Like, how does it start with this guy blowing himself up? Oh my god. You know, he he was always kind of at the heart of things. You know, he was he was living out this strange, uh, romantic um, dream of being a revolutionary. Um, but um, he managed to to to, to put himself um, on on the front line in in you know in many in in many different situations. You know, um, helping Algerian resistors. Um, uh, going to Bolivia and going to Cuba, you know, he, he was, um, he, um, yeah. 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 No, he, it is, it's, it's, it's a little too easy, like you're saying, to, to undersell him as a sort of, uh, uh, a mirage, you know, as a sort of just like, uh, a figure who only exists on paper and books that were published, you know, he was really sort of engaging, um, in political struggle uh, for what he thought was the, really the vanguard. And, and I mean, depending on how you want to qualify the vanguard, he was, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he really was. <laughs> for good or yeah. well, you know. <laughs> I, do, do you think that Falcinelli would have supported uh, Marucci? Because, you know, you, you talk about Marucci really loved Felcinelli. Marucci sort of becomes the heart of the Roman column, which carries out the kidnapping and assassination of Aldo Moro. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think if he'd lived, um, Felcinelli would probably have been funding the Red Brigades. Um, um, and, and attempting to join and probably being knocked back, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, um, on the other hand, you know, he, he did, did have the, these, these very particular ideas about, um, you know, build, building a, a people's army and, you know, and working from the margins inwards, you know, working from Sardinia and, and South Tyrol and so on. So you know there may, may have been too much of a too much of a clash, but I don't know. You know, it it it's certainly intriguing. Um, you, you can see him. Um, um, you can see him uh, sort of certainly lending lending his resources to the Red Brigades. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that's it. Excellent. Yeah. Huge shout out, Phil Edwards, professor at Manchester Metropolitan University and author of the excellent work, More Work, Less Pay. Thank you very much for tuning in, all of you in the audience. 
I'm Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod.